ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 1099. I am your host, Joseph Noop, and I hope you all had a wonderful and sunny 4th of July weekend. And uh, I hope all of your dogs survived the Sky Boomers. So <laughs> today on the show, I've got the man who's launched a few thousand headlines or so in his career, a Wedbush analyst and host of Pactor Factor, which you can find on Sifted.net. Mr. Michael Pactor, sir, how are you doing and how was your holiday? Uh, holiday great. Thank you for asking. And uh, my dog survived as well. Uh, one of them got a little nervous, but we uh, we put a sweater on her, calmed her down. Oh, a so, little like thunder sweater kind of thing. Yeah, it's actually my wife found it on the internet. I have no idea. It's like a, it looks like a Burberry doggy sweater, but it costs like 10 bucks. Oh. She loves it. Keeps her warm. We, uh, the dog at the house party I attended last night was uh, much less concerned about the fireworks and more concerned about the flies orbiting our, our food. And just she's this little, little uh, pug mix thing. And just the most hilarious thing seeing her try to like wrangle flies out of the sky when she's you like, know, I, half a I had a, it. I had a Doberman that died of cancer about 10 years ago. But my dog, mm -hmm. we used to take my dog out on the patio when she was kind of in advanced stages. And I watched my dog staring at like a 75 pound that Doberman. I watched her staring at a fly falling with her eyes. And then she just reached out and she bit and got it in her mouth. Oh. And she chewed for like 30 seconds and then decided she didn't like it. She spit it out and the fly, <laughs> the fly like kind of stumbled around a little bit and then just flew away. It was the funniest. I wish I had <laughs> the whole thing, you know, just like my, but my dog was so intent on catching it and then got it and then didn't eat it and didn't kill it. I couldn't believe it. Anyway. That fly, that fly had the craziest 4th of July. Didn't It didn't matter how much like alcohol anyone else at that party drank. Like that fly had the craziest experience. Exactly. Anyway. All right. I, so uh, let's, let's move on. I hate to, I hate yeah. to waste your day telling you anecdotes about no, dogs. Okay. Um, so yeah, so the couple of big news stories uh, recently, the biggest one I think is the future of GameStop once again is in the news uh, reports from Business Insider and others. Uh, GameStop's stock has dropped by two thirds within the last six months um, from about $15 in January to just $5 by July. And along with uh, some shuffling of its C-suite you know, executives, um, we've... Of course, for years now, it feels like we've kind of been covering the slow demise of GameStop. But uh, for the average person, Mr. Pactor, what does that stock value drop uh, mean in a broad sense? Um, I mean, share prices is, is merely a function of investor perception about the earnings power of the company. So, you know, ultimately, earnings are returned to shareholders either through greater investment in the business, which is kind of how Apple does it or through paying out dividends or buying back stock, which is how a lot of mature companies do it. And so when share prices go up, it's because people think companies are gonna earn more and more. And when they go down, it's because people think uh, companies are gonna earn less and less. And the reason for the big drop in GameStop stock is that there's been a group of investors who have believed for years that GameStop was imminently going to go out of business. And I mean, I remember as as early as 2007 talking to investors about this and 07 is relevant because the PlayStation uh, 3 and the Xbox 360 both were out then and both had disk drives. So, you know, the the Xbox 360 launched in 05 and the PlayStation 06. And yet in 07 people were just like no one's ever going to buy another game because they're going to download everything. 
Um, so investors have been wrong for a long time. And, you know, digital downloads have grown in frequency uh, and in percentage of total sales over the last few years since the Xbox One and the PS4 came out because those consoles launched with big enough hard drives and robust enough interfaces that you know made it very easy to download games and yet we're still not up to 50 percent downloads and uh, you know so i think that the rumors that gamestop was imminently going away were overdone the great unknown as recently as fall of 18 was whether the next generation consoles would have disk drives mm -hmm. and you know both sony and microsoft have acknowledged that they're their new consoles will have optical disk drives. So Sony put the specs out, Microsoft said at E3. And so I'm really baffled that investors think that physical media is going away and that no one's ever going to buy a disc again. Um, I do understand the growing, you know, perception that, that physical sales will decline because obviously you have a lot of talk about services like Google Stadia and Xbox Game Pass and, you know, EA talking about origin access. So people are thinking about streaming services <clears throat> either to purchase or subscribe and obviously ongoing subscription models, which, which are digital. But ultimately, the consumer is going to choose. And if the consumer wants physical and if physical still exists as an option, there's just going to be a large number of people who choose to buy physical. And so the decline from 15 to 5 was because all new management, not not some shuffling, all brand new people in the C-suite, everybody with the chief financial officer, chief uh, executive officer, you know, uh, chief operating officer, all those guys were gone. And the new guys all came in all at once between May and June. Mm -hmm. And the first order of business was they eliminated the dividend. So the, you know, the company was paying something, it was either a dollar 48 or a dollar 52, but call it about 50 dividend. And a buck fifty dividend was enough to support a fifteen dollar share price, and they eliminated the dividend. So when they eliminated the dividend, the stock dropped because people were no longer getting that ten percent return. And the implication of eliminating the dividend is we don't have enough cash to pay it because we're going out of business soon. So I think that the sell off is overdone. Um, the management announced a tender offer for twelve million shares, and they only have one hundred and two million shares. Um, and they call it a Dutch, Dutch auction, but that's going to happen on July 10th. And so the share count's going to decline. Uh, they actually have enough cash at $5 to take the whole company private. And they were in discussions with private equity to buy out the company back in November. They cut off the discussions in November, but the stock was at 16 at the time. Mm -hmm. So if private equity was speaking to management, the old management at 16 about buying the company, Clearly, they were talking about buying it at 16 or higher. They weren't talking about buying the company for 10. So I really kind of wonder if those private equity guys don't drift back into the picture at five and say, this is a really compelling value. And again, the unknown back in November was, will the next generation consoles have disk drives? We now know the answer to that question. So I have a buy on GameStop. And in fairness, I have a $9 target because I'm not crazy. And I'm not going to throw out a 15 or $20 target. And if you're a private equity firm and you want to buy GameStop, you don't have to pay 20. When you come in and offer nine, my guess is the shareholders say yes. So truth is they generate about 300 million in cash. 
a $9 buyout would be about 900 million. So it, you, your payback is three years and that's a pretty good deal. That's a, they call that a 30% free cash flow. Now, uh, private equity will do a deal. What do you, so there's been a lot of reporting that suggests a similar company, Toys R Us, kind of fell prey to what some would call vulture capitalist practices in that scenario, similarly like a, a leveraged buyout, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, a leveraged buyout between uh, shareholders and private equity firms like uh, Bain Capital uh, was uh, done. Uh, basically, Toys R Us was saddled with this large buyout debt, and it very much hindered them being able to kind of climb out of the financial pit they had uh, uh, gotten into. And so with GameStop at $16 a share, this is like late 2018, they were fielding that interest from other private equity groups, uh, but they couldn't persuade banks to finance the purchase. What does, if that goes through... Uh, if that if something like that does go through, even now with the lower uh, share value, um, how how does that impact GameStop? And could something similar uh, happen that like happened to Toys R Us? Yeah, sure, it can happen. And you know, I don't think that investors should care. Uh, the only investor who should care is the private equity group that buys them. Mm -hmm. uh, the investors who own the public equity, if they can sell, if they can buy stock at five dollars and sell it at nine, they should be doing that all day long make the profit and, and run. Um, consumers will care because ultimately GameStop is going to go away. But you know, before GameStop goes away, we're going to have a clear indication that there won't be physical disks offered anymore. And it, that's why we were waiting for Microsoft and Sony to announce whether the next-gen consoles would have optical drives. Um, I don't think there's any anybody who, who you know thinks that digital downloads are going to go away. Of course, You've always been able to download games digitally. It just didn't make sense to do it when your hard drive on an Xbox was 20 gigabytes. You know, you wouldn't do it. But now that your hard drives are 500 gigs and up, I mean, some of them have two terabytes. Why not? Like, it's not that big a deal. And now that you trust the cloud, you can get your game back anytime you feel like going back and playing some library title that you bought five years ago. Mm -hmm. So digital is going to increase as a percentage of the mix for sure. And there was a possibility, I think a little probability, that Sony and Microsoft would turn their back on gamers and say, screw you, we're going to make you download everything digitally and there won't be any optical disk drive. They didn't do that. So the 2020 console launches are going to probably be you know, relevant until 2027 or later, and even then, probably until you know, 2030. Uh, so GameStop's got a good seven to 10 years more of legroom of, of, of uh, runway to run their business, they're not going to be as big in 10 years as they are now. I mean, this next generation will be, you know, a higher percentage mix of digital downloads and GameStop is going to sell fewer and fewer discs. But the truth is, like, look what happened with music and books and movies, you know, video. Um, obviously, you can download any song you want or subscribe to Spotify. But guess what? They still make music CDs. Obviously, you can watch any movie on demand that you want to. But guess what? They still make movie C movie DVDs. And obviously, you can download any book you want to your Kindle, but they still make books. So as long as there is some consumer out there who wants physical, and as long as the physical media is still being manufactured, there's got to be a place to buy them. And you know, your question about Toys R Us, 
I don't think Toys R Us added that much value. I mean, I think they still exist, but they didn't add that much value. It was KB Toys, I think, is the one that actually went out of business. Uh, but Toys R Us doesn't add that much value. There's not that much. You don't really need to see or touch, you know, a, a Mickey Mouse bedspread mm-hmm. or lunchbox or a Barbie doll. And you know what they are. And you can buy those on Amazon. Um, you could argue that about games as well. But a lot of us go in to buy games as gifts. And if we're not game experts, you know, if it's grandma buying you a game and she says, hey, we're just buying a new PS5 for little Johnny, what game should we buy with it? The people at GameStop are generally pretty knowledgeable and they will tell you, you know, this is hot, but, you know, buy GTA because it's the best game ever made by Red Dead. But also here's the new, you know, Halo launching. And, and grandma might not know without the help. So I, I think there's a place for it. There are gamers who clearly prefer physical because they want they want to trade them in. So they look at a physical disc as a $10 bill and they know that they're going to have value for that. There are gamers who like to take games to their friend's house and play. There are gamers who like to give games away when they're done. That's me. When I'm done playing with a game and I know I'm not playing it again, I always give it to my next door mm-hmm. neighbor, huge gamer loves playing, doesn't have a big budget, and I give him 10 games a year and he's in heaven. So, you know, then there's people like grandma who want to put a Christmas gift under the tree. And you can give a gift card, obviously, that says you you have a copy of Gears of War. But it's kind of nicer to open up the copy of Gears of War and pop it in the disc drive and play it. So, you know, I think there's going to be room for physical discs for another decade. And I think GameStop's going to be fine. Um, I do think you're right about private equity. They could burden games up with debt, which would mean more store closings, but I don't think they're going away altogether. And and I think more important for the gamer, I don't think the gamer should care about GameStop per se. They should care that they have a place to buy physical discs and that place will always be Amazon. What do you think of the the or industry-wide impact of if we do eventually lose GameStop, will it matter that like the the physical share of the market is then handed off to majority wise handed off to Walmart, Target, Best Buy. Uh, do do we lose something financially or uh, in ter- perhaps in terms of like discoverability uh, when we lose that kind of uh, specialized knowledge that a GameStop store might offer? Oh, uh, I mean, good question. I think, you know, as far as the oligopoly of a handful of, of retailers, um, the consumer's not going to lose much. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like any of those one, those guys aren't going to collude and say, let's raise the price of games to $80 or anything. Nothing like that will happen. Um, as far as, you know, learning about games, a gamer knows that they don't need to talk to a game software. A gamer can find a game review, you know, via Metacritic in about five seconds on his phone. And Metacritic sorts reviews by reviewer and you click through it. You know, so you have people like me, I have my favorite reviewers like Jim Sterling Mm -hmm. and I just, he and I have super similar tastes and he's brutally honest. And I, you know, if I find an iffy game that I'm not sure about, like let's say Anthem, you know, I might actually read the Jim Sterling review before I bother to play the game because if Jim says it's a piece of trash, I won't buy it. If Jim says, no, I know it got a bad average score, but here's what I liked about it. Then he tends to resonate with me. So, you know, I don't need it to read a review on Grand Theft Auto or Red Dead because you know they're great. But there are you know plenty of games that get in the 70s, and I'm never really sure if I want to waste my time playing them. 
And so I know how to find a review. And I think most gamers get that. Uh, so the interesting thing is GameStop kind of positions itself as a gamer destination, but it really is more of a casual gamer destination of people who are looking for that specialized knowledge and help, which is grandma. You're not getting that at Walmart. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, it's tough enough to find an employee who will like open the glass door for you at Walmart, much less, you know, have a conversation with you. Uh, one, one thing we talk about physical media. And one thing that has always struck me as very peculiar is GameStop's relatively recent growth of like the figure and accessory uh, items that they'll sell. You can't walk through a GameStop without bumping into several accessory or trinket displays um, uh, or like the Funko wall, if you will. Uh, why do chains like GameStop attempt to diversify in such peculiar ways? And like, what was, what do you think was the rationale there saying like, we're going to offer these, these accessories, even though we know the market is like the, the meat of our market is going digital in a way. Um, I think, I think most, uh, most of that stuff is just for impulse purchases. I don't think there's any hard sell. And I and, definitely fallen victim to that. Too. Yeah, me too. Me too. And you know, the funny thing, um, I used to go to Blockbuster back when Blockbuster was a thing. And toward the end, you know, probably in 2005 through 2007 or eight, um, I noticed that they were adding um, popcorn, like, like the prepackaged, you know, a packet of popcorn you throw in the microwave and juji fruits and raisinets and stuff like mm -hmm. that on the walkthrough you know they, they'd have the, the checkout aisle kind of wind through you'd have to walk through a little path to get to checkout and they had all those little impulse purchases and then more recently maybe in the last five or six years i saw best buy do the same thing and best buy had not just like candy and stuff they had like iphone chargers or you know supports or um, the pocket chargers, those little, I forget what we call them, those juice packs, you know, that, that have extra charge in them. Stupid mm -hmm. little impulse purchases that we all need and all want. And there they were, you know, hanging. And DVDs, you know, there would be like, you know, whatever, Forrest Gump DVD for $5, stuff like that. And same thing, you see it at the grocery store, in the checkout line, there's the National Enquirer and People Magazine mm -hmm. and some candy and now a little refrigerated section that has a can of Red Bull, you know, and those are impulse purchases. And if they can increase their profit by offering that, more power to them. So GameStop bought ThinkGeek and they got access to all these Funko collectibles. And, you know, gamers are big time collectible nerds. I mean, we are. And not just collectible for game stuff. We like movie posters. We like Star Wars. We like Lord of the Rings. You know, we like whatever. So you can have Fallout, you know, collectibles, and you can have Star Wars collectibles, and it doesn't matter. You know, we'll buy them. Um, I actually literally just got uh, from Mike Bethel. Um, I just got a collectible coin that's uh, from John. The John Wick, Wick coin. Yeah. And I'm just I got like, the same one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I looked it up on the internet. It's worth like $9, you know, but it was yeah. just a really cool little collectible thing. And I'm never going to take it out of the case. Like, I'm, that is so cool. You know, so we love that shit. You know, I talk to investors all the time, like who buys that stuff? And I go, I do. Um, and I don't know why my wife thinks it's idiotic. I probably have a, you know, $50 a year habit 
but multiply that times you know 10 million and you're suddenly talking about 500 million of revenue so i don't blame them for selling that stuff uh, yeah the geek culture certainly loves its impulse purchases and the things that it, de it definitely doesn't strictly need but I, uh, I moved to Los Angeles a little over a month ago. And of course, one of the things I had to have in my new apartment was and pay good money for UPS to ship was my $150 statue of Reaper from Overwatch. Uh, oh, wow. Cool. <laughs> and it's it's sitting on my dresser right there. So I have no room to, to judge anyone. But I, I went into a GameStop uh, managers conference. They had they used to have them in Vegas. I think they're having it in like Texas or something this year. But uh, they had a full, not a full size, they had a uh, very large scale reproduction of the Millennium Falcon. And oh, wow. I mean, it was, it was probably three feet by, by two feet. It was big on a stand and it was 400 bucks. And I was so close to buying it. And then yeah. I, the reason I didn't is I'm like, well, where am I going to, it was a little too big. Like, where am I going to actually put it? Mm -hmm. But I wanted it. You know, it's just like, <laughs> wow, I want that. And I have no idea why I wanted it, but that's what, it's brilliant. I love that shit. They've always got to put that stuff on like a, a pedestal somewhere in the middle of the room, of course, so people can see it. But also, I think that's a that's a subtle hint for you to say like, oh, I need to buy like a, a small pedestal in the middle of my office for it. I want <laughs> the full size. The I want the full size Master Chief uniform, but I don't think I, I, I probably uh -oh. could actually get one of those. But I don't know. You know, my uh, my wife would kill me. But I yeah. actually could get. I think if I asked the the three four three people, they'd send me one. So. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Mr. Kyle Orland from Ars Technica, uh, tweeted out, uh, you know, hey, folks or followers, you know, uh, if GameSpot does go, you know, who who will like honestly, uh, if GameStop does go, who will honestly miss it? And a lot of the people you would see responding, and I've and I've see, we've seen this before, is you know, people saying, I live in a rural area, um, and I can't rely all the time on digital. Uh, means to get games either because my internet is trash or uh, I have a data cap that like you know is like half a terabyte and just you know will get clobbered with one game download um, what steps does the industry have to take to hold on to uh, obviously you're not going to like lose gamers but they're going to have to find means of of still servicing those gamers uh, even as digital becomes stronger and bigger um, do big box stores just take over or does like you, I guess we still have at least like 10 years, like you say that before GameStop is really, uh, gone, but how, what steps does the industry take to hold on to those people in less advantaged areas? Well, Amazon, Amazon will ship anywhere. So, yeah, I mean, it, I get if you're, if you say, well, we don't have internet and we don't have phone service and I can't get on Amazon. Okay. But I'd say that's a tiny, tiny fraction of 1% of people. Yeah. And you have, you know, two and a half billion people with internet access. So unless we're talking about, you know, guys in places without electricity, you know, that they, they pretty much can get cell phone service. And so everybody can use Amazon. So I don't think that GameStop is necessary to keep people, you know, to create an opportunity for people to buy games. I do think that you know, that GameStop is is important because it allows the trading room of use games. And I think that has real value to the consumer. Um, so that's the element of GameStop that I think people would miss the most. And I think that's the answer to Kyle's question, who would miss it? Um, the answer is the 50% of people who trade in games. And it's 50% of physical games are traded back in. 
So, so clearly somebody thinks that has value. And that's, you know, again, billions of dollars of games a year traded back in for credit. Um, so, you know, it's, I, and I, I like Kyle, I think he's super smart. So I don't, don't think he's being thoughtless, but that's kind of a, and I'm saying this with tongue in cheek, that's kind of a Republican's response, you know, hmm. that, oh, who needs healthcare, you know, because because all of us rich people have it. Well, poor people, you know, so who needs to trade games in? Because us rich people don't do that. Well, poor people do. And so they'll miss it. Um, so I think GameStop provides a massive service to either cheap people or poor people who value the trade-in. And, you know, cheap, being call it cost-conscious, prudent, whatever you want to call that, that term. And I think those people, you know, so long as they choose to buy physical and trade them in, that then creates a market for used games. And who buys used games? Cost-conscious or poor people? And so I remember uh, one of my coworkers back in 2000. Nine, I think it was, uh, telling me how he went to the store and bought a used Wii. You know, remember the Wii? <laughs> and a used Wii and 15 games for 300 bucks. And I was like, at GameStop. And I was like, what a great thing. And he goes, yeah, you know, my kid's six. And I wasn't sure, you know, if he, if I really should go spend the money on a new Wii. So I wanted to buy a used one. And they had this bundle. And, you know, is it a good deal? It was like every good game made on the Wii was in that bubble. I'm like, yeah, you got a phenomenal deal. And he told me after a year, his kid really wanted a new one. He traded all of it back into GameStop and got like a $120 credit for his $300 purchase. It felt, felt like that was fair. And guess what? They sold it to some other father for 300 bucks. So, you know, it's a good way for people to, to and by, I, I buy used games all the time to try them. You know, mm -hmm. I'll see something that I haven't tried before. And it's like, it's only 10 bucks. What the hell? You know, and again, I don't trade them and I give them away. But you, I know I could trade the thing back in for five bucks or three bucks or something. So I think that that's a real service for people who want to try before they buy and who don't want to get committed into a Game Pass $15 a month subscription or anything. So you know, there's a value there. And so Kyle's wrong. We will totally miss <laughs> GameStop if that value just, just dissipates to zero. I look forward to the uh, the future Twitter feuds between you and Mr. Kyle Orland, but <laughs> no, I like Kyle. I don't think he's no. a, I don't, he's not a bad guy. No, no, yeah. And I hope I didn't misrepresent his question people. either. Uh, he he yeah. was definitely just kind of fishing for for thoughts and feelings. Well, he's but... right. As far as purchasing <clears throat> as a destination to buy new games, he's he's right. Nobody will miss it. As a destination to trade in old games or buy old games, he's he's missing the point completely. Mm -hmm. People who trade in or people who buy used are going to miss it because there won't be that opportunity anymore. So let's let's shift over. Speaking of subscriptions, the the ongoing subscriptions arm race, uh, or at least the preliminary steps of it. Uh, of course, E3 having just finished last month, uh, we now know about xCloud. Uh, prior to that, we got lots of information about Google Stadia. Um, and PlayStation, you know, especially because of their, their presence at E3, oh, hello, Slack, their presence at E3 was uh, minimal to none, of course, but they have said that they're going all in on PlayStation now, uh, what was effectively their service where you would download a game to your PlayStation and you could uh, stream it uh, supposedly anywhere, I, I, I'm not sure, but uh, what do you envision PlayStation going all in what what do you mean what do you think they mean when they say we're going all in on PS now oh god I have no idea I mean 
I, I hate that term. It's funny, uh, Amazon uses that term. Um, every time someone signs up AWS as a customer, they say, you know, uh, whatever, McDonald's goes all in on AWS. It's, I, it just sounds like it's a, it's a poker term, as you mm-hmm. know, right? And, and it means that we're betting all the rest of our chips on this. So I think it's a frequently misused term to suggest to the reader that they are more committed than perhaps they might be. Um, I don't think Sony's betting the future of the company on PS now. So I think it's a stupid comment because you know what happens if you're all in and you lose the hand, you're out of the tournament. So again, I think, I think it's really a dumb comment, but, but I hate it when Amazon does it too. Um, The truth is, I think that Sony recognized back in 2012 or 13, that uh, there was a future without consoles and that, that that future would be more likely than not a streaming future. And they bought so Gaikai. They, they bought Gaikai for a lot of money and they bought OnLive for a little bit of money. But at the time, those were the two companies that were good at streaming. And in the intervening few years, um, streaming technology has become more of a commodity and by commodity, I don't mean that you and I could do it, but but if you're AWS or you're Google and you have this sophisticated cloud product, you just know how to stream games. I mean, you can figure it out. And AWS had to build it to stream video and music and Google built it. God knows why, but they built it. Microsoft clearly knows how to do it. And so I kind of wonder what the OnLive and Gaikai, you know, patent portfolio advantage is for Sony. Um, I, I suspect that, you know, the technology is quite similar across all of them between Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Sony. And while I think Sony's, you know, first mover advantage may be, uh, maybe something may be something that's a positive. I don't think Sony could ever be better at streaming games than Google or Microsoft or Amazon, because those guys have significantly more resources and they have a core business which is cloud that is so big and growing so fast that it's in their their best interest to make sure they win on the on the game streaming side so at the end of the day i think this is great for consumers everybody's going after your dollar and the the fact is that you know you are you should be indifferent how you receive a game through a streaming service um, just like you're indifferent how you watch a movie on on demand, like I you know, it, I have multiple services available to me to watch a movie on demand. I watch Netflix, I watch Amazon, I do on demand pay movies on mm-hmm. Amazon. I have an Apple TV. I do on demand pay movies through Apple TV. In another room, I have a Roku box. I do on demand pay movies through Roku. And I also have a direct TV subscription and occasionally we watch an on-demand there. And if you ask me, which one did you, you know, watch a uh, star is born on? I don't remember. I did pay for it, but I don't remember which one I watched it on, nor do I care any more than you care, which theater you saw a movie in, you know, Avengers Endgame. Like you don't care, mm-hmm. you know, unless it was IMAX, you really wouldn't remember where you saw it. So I think that's, what's going to happen with streaming and all in or not. Sony's only competitive advantage in streaming games is first-party Sony games. So if you want to play God of War or Spider-Man, 
or you know last of us part two then you're going to play it on on a sony service but short of those games if you want to play fifa or call of duty my guess is they'll be available on amazon and google stadia and uh microsoft game pass and whatever not as part of the subscription but as a, on a pay-as-you-go basis and so i don't think sony really has much opportunity to differentiate itself possibly though the way that microsoft's done with game pass sony will come up with a subscription service that has every sony first party title ever made you know crash bandicoot and uh, uh super bust to move part two and whatever the hell else they the rapper the rapper you know so maybe they'll have stuff like that and that'll be enough for us to to subscribe to playstation now and you know uh with the previous generation, um, Xbox 360 and, and, and PS3 era, uh, of course, the big technology war was between Blu-rays and HD DVDs. And uh, I, I never really got a good beat on um, over over time, of course, it became clear that Blu-ray was becoming the predominantly favored uh, format. Um, and Xbox 360 and Microsoft had to just contend with the HD DVD marketplace until they were able to, you know, uh, go on to the next step with Xbox One. Uh, how how does a company handle such a big like, well, OK, the thing that we took a big bet on uh, ended up not being the format that everyone wants to pick. How does a company get out of that pits without, of course, you know, incurring a lot of financial loss on themselves? And would PlayStation probably uh, have to take some sort of action like that if they do, in fact, fall so far behind on the uh, digital uh, streaming front? Well, I mean, there's a, a concept in economics called sunk cost. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've already spent $450 million on Kaikai. So if they decide to abandon it, the money was is long gone, so it doesn't really matter. Yes, they'll take a financial charge, but they, they've already spent the money, so it doesn't cost them anything to abandon. Um, Sony has a history of wild success and wild failure. They failed on Betamax, mm. you know, and so it, it versus VHS, um, and that was 1980. And I don't think they shut down Betamax manufacture until the 2000s. You can look it up, but it was. For sure in the 2000s it wasn't uh, in the 90s they kept plugging away for 25 years after they lost that battle um so who knows if you know different management now so who knows when they'll give up uh but they fit they failed on something called multimedia cd look it up mmcd they lost to dvd um they won on blu-ray but blu-ray discs are largely irrelevant now so they want to call that a pyrrhic victory um so i don't know like i I don't, I'm not skeptical that Sony has bad technology. I'm skeptical that this business streaming business is anything more than a commodity. So who cares? Like to me, it's like, you know, music is a commodity, Apple music versus Amazon music versus Napster versus Spotify. Mm -hmm. The differentiation for Spotify is they have a really slick interface. It's really easy to share song lists. You know, it's easy to have a family plan. I mean, they do a lot, you know, but I think Netflix is a commodity. The, the, the differentiation is if they have their own content. And so Netflix is thriving because of originals and Sony may thrive because of originals. At the end of the day, I don't think we consumers are going to look at streaming services 
as anything more than a means of distribution, just like we look at movies on demand and we don't really care where we get them. So I don't see streaming as a subscription service working. I do see streaming as a distribution metric method working, but I think consumers will view that as a commodity and it'll be largely undifferentiated. And Sony and Microsoft will keep making first party exclusives and give us a reason to go there. But, you know, again, it's, it's like, you know, is there a Warner Brothers streaming service where you can only see Batman and Superman movies? No, you know, maybe someday, but not yet. It, it has been interesting seeing companies like Disney say, okay, well, of course, we're going to launch our own streaming service. And uh, I guess Disney itself, of course, is a monopoly. So they're, they're not really, uh, they'll be able to acquire more property as they go on, much like Star Wars, much like uh, uh, anything else. But, uh, and people seem to forget. Yeah, look what they, but look, look what they did before they announced that. They bought Pixar, followed mm-hmm. by uh, Marvel followed by Lucas, followed by Fox. So they they literally control, for real, I'm not making this up, 45% of box office. Mm-hmm. And their film library is literally probably about 30% of all movies ever made. So that's a pretty huge library. And so if they offer, and they've also been masterful at re-releasing movies. So, you know, remember movies like Cinderella and Snow White and Frozen? You know, those don't come out every year. And the Lion King animated, you know, those come out every 10 years or seven years or something. They're going to put all those on their service. So if you have kids, you're subscribing and then they're pricing it right. $69.99 a year. My kids are 19. I'm joining it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, of course I'm joining it. And, you know, my kids, my kids actually, we all still really like Disney stuff. But um, yeah, it's, they're brilliant and they have the content to pull it off. Sony has, I think, I think I've measured about eight or 9% of all the games ever made. It's not, you know, it's a lot, but it's not 30. Nobody has 30. So it's really going to be hard to pull this off. And you raise an interesting point now, switching over to a little bit of like the the future of consoles, of course. Uh, Microsoft, the last two years here, has made uh, big business out of saying, we're acquiring this studio and this studio and this studio and really beefing up uh, what we would consider a, a first-party catalog of studios and eventual titles. And we're starting to see some of those come to fruition, um, or at least teased now at E3. Uh, will will Sony kind of answer in kind? Will they uh, begin to lap up more studios to kind of compete with that? Or uh, do you think that they'll still just rely on like a mix of first-party and third-party uh, kind of split even? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I'm not really sure... Uh, if, if all the studio purchases by Microsoft make sense, some are tiny, some are pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, some are, you know, arguably great. Some are arguably failed. So, you know, it's hard to know um, the, the, you know, all the studios combined that they acquired, you know, how many of them had a, you know, game that sold $500 million, maybe Hellblade. Right. But, but I don't think anything that, that Double Fine's ever done has been that kind of a game. I mean, I can't remember one. Right. In Exile, I don't think ever. Obsidian, maybe. Yeah, they might have. I mean, even Fallout New Vegas. And I actually personally think The Outer Worlds would be a big deal. I think it's going to do great. But, you know, that's so they're mixed. You know, some of the studios make little tiny indie games and some make big, high budget, you know, big proposition. And so Microsoft is going, I think, more for 
quantity. I mean, good quality, but I, I think they're going to quantity of titles rather than trying to buy, you know, like, like, a uh, like, a uh, I can't say, it. um, Insomniac or, you know, they're not buying Valve and, and putting out Half-Life 3. Um, so Sony, sure. Of course they'll buy some. Um, I'm surprised they haven't bought Insomniac yet. Yeah. Um, maybe they will. Maybe, you know, maybe Ted Price wants to remain independent. We're kind of running out of super high quality, you know, independent studios. I mean, there's just, there still are a, a couple of dozen, but there aren't. It's they're fewer and fewer and fewer, and Microsoft definitely is acquisitive. And I think Microsoft's doing this for Game Pass. I think Microsoft fully intends to launch a game a quarter forever. You know, that's why they're going to end up with 10 studios and probably literally have them making all on a two-year, you know, two-and-a-half-year, three-year game cycle. So one every quarter, a new game will come out. That'll support a subscription service. I actually think that might work. Sony's going to have to buy a lot more studios and they're going to have to be more productive. Like how often does Polyphony Digital put out a game? Certainly not every three years. Um, So we'll see. And, you know, I think a lot about uh, ongoing kind of service style games. Um, My friends and I play a lot of Overwatch. Uh, We've kind of sifted through uh, Ubisoft's catalog. Uh, We play a, a fair bit of Apex. And of course, Fortnite is just out there smashing everything to pieces. Uh, and there's an interesting convergence between subscription services and those service games. I think it can al- it can almost be said that these were titles attempting to like emulate a subscription style revenue flow, but perhaps with like the larger buy-in for stuff like Ubisoft's catalog. Obviously not Fortnite or Apex, since those are free to play. But do you think do you think as we go further towards subscription services like Games Pass? Uh, and free-to-play games like Apex or Fortnite or Ubisoft uh, end up on those platforms, how will they impact uh, the way that those ongoing service games make their money back? Well, the, I mean, I'm not sure if I got the question right, but but free-to-play games aren't going to be exclusive to any console unless they're made by that console manufacturer, mm-hmm. so unless it's a Microsoft-owned game like, uh, uh, shit, Minecraft. Um, and which, by the way, isn't Xbox exclusive, but they, they could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you own it, you're not going to make it exclusive to one console. And so if there are multiple consoles, then who cares? I mean, again, as a consumer, um, you don't care if you're playing on PC or console unless you have this affinity for a console controller. And that's where the streaming services are interesting because they're basically taking a PC type game and putting it on on your television and letting you play with the controller. Um, but again, you know, I'd say in 10 years, 90% of gameplay is going to be through a streaming service and 10% on console because it's just more comfortable to sit on the couch and play on a giant screen than it is to sit at your desk with a you know 30 inch monitor. If you're lucky, I, I have a 30 inch HD monitor. It's nice, but I, I haven't invested in a 4k monitor yet. You know, and I have, the graphics cards to pull it off. I just haven't bothered upgrading my monitor yet. I'd still rather play on my 65 inch TV in my living room, mm-hmm. which is more comfortable. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think it matters. I think free to play games showing up on consoles are just doing it to acknowledge that there are certain types of gamers who prefer to play on a console. But I think, you know, literally way more than half of the people who play Fortnite or play Apex, you know, play them on PC. And obviously, all the people who play League of Legends play on PC. 
So, you know, people who play big free-to-play games are comfortable playing on PC. And eventually, they'll migrate toward console as they become available. I don't think it matters at all. Free-to-play guys are making their games to get a lot of players, and they hope to make a little bit of money from a lot of players. And if you're Fortnite, it adds up to billions of dollars. I've uh, I've done some reporting on Fortnite for PC Gamer over the last year or so, and it has been interesting to see... Uh, how quickly Fortnite turns a lot of 10, maybe 12 year olds into PC gamers, because there's, there's something about, I don't know, the, the flexibility of that platform that uh, makes a lot of the kids think that like, Oh, we should be playing there and not like on our dopey consoles or something, but. Oh, totally. No, no. And, and again, you know, I think that, the, the guy, Epic guys are really enlightened about this. Like they're just trying to be available everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's where, where I think they were super, super smart. Um, they built the Unreal Engine, you know, uh, 20 years ago. But as they keep modifying it, they're the guys who came up with, hey, let's create a bridge for cross-platform play and let's promote the shit out of it so that people are indifferent where they're playing. And so... I think that Fortnite was intended to be a proof of concept that the Unreal Engine would allow cross-platform play between PC, both console, all three consoles, and and a cell phone. And I I promise you, when I first saw it and that that it actually worked, I was blown away because most most um, mobile games are asynchronous. Mm-hmm. Like you don't see the other guy attacking you. In fact, you know, I'm playing this Empires and Puzzles game right now. And it's like, if you try to revenge against somebody who attacked you, it says you can't attack him. He's still online. You got to wait till he's offline to attack him. And, you know, like I've literally kept my phone online for five hours just so I wouldn't get attacked. But, um, you know, most games are asynchronous. And, and my God, Fortnite is synchronous. It's unbelievable how good that is. So, you know, I think that that's the future of games is any platform, any screen you want to play on. That's what streaming is all about. You can play a game on any screen that is connected to the internet. And that's that's the best thing you can do for gamers. Give gamers choice and flexibility. It kind of goes back to what we are talking about with GameStop. Give the gamer a choice. You want a disc? You get a disc. You want to play on your phone? Play on your phone. You want to play on your PC? Play on your PC. So I think that's where we're headed, that any gamer who wants to play wherever they want to play it's going to be allowed to, and that's good for all of us. And you know, funny, funny you mentioned like just the the freedom of choice in that sense. I was I was lucky enough to attend Microsoft's E three briefing, and it struck me over the course of the week how strongly they really stuck to I think what is Sony's old line. You know, this is going to be a the, the new Xbox is going to be a console that focuses on bringing you games without too many bells and whistles, and obviously it's it's all kind of a a self referential. Uh, self-degrading kind of reference to the Xbox One and the initial problems it had when they were promoting it as like, this is an always online console. Uh, And of course, the community reacted very uh, viciously about that. Um, And what do you think Microsoft, it's it's funny to think now that we're in an age of like, yeah, streaming services sound pretty awesome, that that definitely requires an always online connection of sorts. Uh, but what do you think Microsoft has learned from that tough launch of the Xbox One? And what does that translate into with Scarlet and future of streaming? Yeah, I think Microsoft miscalculated um, 
you know, their old CEO or Xbox CEO was, was uh, Don Matrick. I think Don really thought he could kind of eliminate used games. And I think he perceived used games to be a threat to new game sales. And there's a, there's two, two ways of looking at that. You know, it's like saying used cars are an impediment to new mm -hmm. car sales. They are, but they also help you afford a new car if you have a used car. So, you know, obviously if you buy a used car, you're not buying a new car. He felt that way. And I think he was wrong, but I'm, I'm in the other school of thought that, that they facilitate new purchases. Anyway, he decided to eliminate used game sales. So he came up with always on, nobody can steal. You can't play at your friend's house. You can't trade it in. And that just, that was too early for most people. That was a, too big of a change. And Sony capitalized on the Microsoft mistake on Monday morning, whatever day in June that was, 2013. And that afternoon, they had a, a video out, Adam Boys handing Shu Yoshida mm -hmm. a game disc. Here's how you share a game on PlayStation 4, and the rest is history. Um, so, you know, I think Microsoft really, really badly screwed up by taking something away from gamers that maybe most gamers don't even want, but people just like the, the, the idea that if they want to buy a physical disc, they can, and they don't want to be told you can't. So Microsoft blew that. They also blew it by saying connect is part of it because most people didn't want connect. And I don't even know how many people bought connect prior to 20 or 30 million people and couldn't figure out why they had the damn thing. So, you know, I think they learned a lot and this time, you don't have Don Matrick in charge. You got Phil Spencer in charge. And Phil, I, I truly believe this, is a friend to gamers. Mm -hmm. The guy really seriously cares about delighting gamers. He understands this is, this is our entertainment, and he wants us to have as much choice as possible. Hence the optical disk drive. They're not taking it away. I thought they might. I really did. So I think that, you know, Microsoft learned a lot. Um, now the open question is, did they learn that $500 console is too high a price point? Will they launch at 400? I think so, but we're going to find out. And boy, the specs on that Sony uh, PS5, I, you know, I was going to ask, uh, yeah. The Jeff Keighley uh, YouTube show, you know, I said, I said, if you read the specs and add it all up, that's an $800 console. And I said in the same appearance, there's no chance they charge 800 bucks. You know, I think 500 would be a stretch. But, you know, Microsoft, the last several years has gone on a Sunday and Sony, when they had a conference, went on a Monday. Possibly Sony will announce all this in you know March at a separate event. But I think if Microsoft charges 400, Sony's going to charge 400. So even if it costs them 200 bucks per console to sell them, they're going to charge 400. So I hope that's the price point, but who knows? 800, no way. I just said I, the way that the, the specs are so impressive that it suggests a super high price. And so you answered what was basically my second to last question there. And thank you for that. That that was I was certainly going to ask like, yeah, how does that square up with some of the, the comments you made previously? But uh, we'll tell you what, we'll leave off with this. Um, where where does Nintendo factor into all of this? And one of the things that I think is interesting is that slowly we've seen Nintendo kind of hand off some of their core properties to third party developers. We just had Cadence of Hyrule, we, uh, Metroid isn't, I believe is going back to rare, uh, if I remember the reporting correctly. And uh, it seems like they're opening up a little bit more, although of course, being a Japanese company is still staying pretty insular. But 
is Nintendo can do we have an idea of what their strategy will be in the near future or is it just Nintendo's going to Nintendo? Um, I would have said that until Furukawa became president, and I don't know the guy, so I don't mean to say that I, I know something about him. Um, I think he's a much more forward thinking guy than Iwata was or Kimishima was. And uh, I- Iwata was, you know, all Nintendo software exists solely to port- support Nintendo hardware. Uh, Kimishima just carried that torch. Furukawa, you know, at a minimum, um, you know, I think he's starting to talk about collaboration with other companies. And you're starting to see other, you know, other types of, of gameplay encouraged. Um, I think that Nintendo probably is going to resign itself to being the handheld king, and they will be. Um, I think the Switch is primarily mm-hmm. a handheld device. Obviously, you can play it as a console. I expect a handheld device to launch in the next couple of months and a handheld only Switch. And I think all the games will work on it and they will dominate there. Um, whether they're ready to put their games on other platforms or put their games on streaming services remains to be seen. But I think they're open to it. So if they see a Google Stadia followed by a Microsoft streaming service followed by an Amazon streaming service followed by an Apple streaming service getting traction, they should look at that as a store to sell their damn IP. And they shouldn't worry because if everybody else's games are played without a console, why can't you play Nintendo games without a console? I think their sales would double overnight. So I'm hopeful that they see that. Um, The stock has been ripping lately because I think investors expect that that's going to happen. And if it does happen, I'm going to love Nintendo shares and I'm going to be a big bull on Nintendo, but it hasn't happened yet. So I think the young CEO is open to that. And I think it's possible that we'll get um, some traction in that direction. Don't expect it all at once. I'd say that they'll be late to the party. So we aren't going to hear about this till 2021. Let the streaming services launch first and then see if Nintendo decides mm-hmm. to offer some content. And, you know, quick follow-up to that. We talk about Phil Spencer and uh, Furukawa. Uh, we just had Doug Bowser uh, come onto the scene as the president of Nintendo America. And I don't know how well you've gotten to know him. I know he was at your uh, Wedbush party there uh, that I was lucky enough to uh, get into and hang out there. Uh, but do you have any inkling of what Doug will be uh, kind of imparting onto Nintendo? Well, Doug is definitely going to do what, you know, Nintendo management asked him to do. I mean, he's a good soldier. Um, he's definitely has deep relationships among the other publishers. So he worked for EA. Um, so he, you know, he certainly is more of a game guy than Reggie was. And, you know, I know everybody just loves Reggie's bits, but Reggie wasn't a game guy. Reggie mm-hmm. was a Pizza Hut guy. Reggie was a marketing guy. And again, great at Pizza Hut, great at marketing, a senior guy there. But Doug is an EA game guy. And I think Doug absolutely understands publishers, how they work. Um, I think you're going to see better deals made on the Switch. And I frankly think Doug is just a brilliant promotion. I love the guy. Love him, love him, love him. Um, now, again, if if Kyoto management tells him, no, you're not doing this, then he's not going to do it. You know, He doesn't make the rules, but he executes you know, the rules that his superiors tell him to execute. And he'll be great at it. So I, I, I'm getting the vibe, and I do know him well. I'm getting the vibe from his body language that this company is about to be great. 
I really, really do believe that. And I think one of the reasons they picked him to replace Reggie is because I think he's got publisher relationships and he understands publishers. So, you know, he hired uh, Johnny Vignocchi to be his external mm-hmm. publisher relations friend guy. of the show, Johnny Vignocchi. Yeah. Yeah. And Johnny, you know, Johnny worked at Midway, worked at Disney, worked at Gearbox. I mean, knows everybody. I think you're going to see content on, on the switch pretty soon. I think Johnny's going to succeed. Well, Mr. Pactor, thank you so much for joining us here on this episode. And it's been an absolute blast kind of getting to see uh, the side of the industry from your perspective and, Hope that everything goes well on your end as well. Thank you, sir. And folks, you can find a new episode of the 1099 here every week uh, on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and elsewhere. And check us out next week. 